Welcome to the Business of Beers podcast. This is the place where we help entrepreneurs expand their business, build their wealth, and generate passive income. I'm your host, Brian Beers, an entrepreneur who's on a mission to inspire growth from everyone around me. Remember that you need to take the action others won't, and you can live the life that others don't. Please be sure to check out my weekly newsletter that now drops every Thursday. It includes one quote, one tweet, one podcast recommendation, plus some business and investing insight from me. It's short and it's sweet. My goal is to provide you with just a couple gold nuggets to help inspire your growth. Go to brianbeers.com to subscribe. Hello, everyone. I am very excited today to bring you Kevin Monaghan. Kevin is the founder of Intuitive Compensation Group, a company that teaches business owners how to protect, incentivize, and compensate key employees. He's also author of a new book, The Rise of the Super Producers, Introducing Broadcast Selling and the Scalability of Professional Services. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Hey, thank you, Brian. Good to be here. Awesome. To start, can you give us, you know, I don't know, a couple minute overview, just kind of your journey, your background from 18 years old to kind of where you're at now. And then uh, we'll go from there. Sure. Um, at 18, I went to college without really knowing what I wanted to do. So I wasted the first four years of my adult life. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, you're supposed to get a job right afterwards. So uh, I did. And within in my first performance review, I did better than everybody else. And you know, got a $500 raise for, for the year <laughs> and told that I had to stay there for two more years. And that didn't sit well with me. So I actually, with no plans to quit during my first performance review, needed to find something else to do. And so I moved across the country to sleep on my friends from, from college. That was really the, the best benefit I got out of college was, <laughs> was the, was the ability to sleep on somebody's floor afterwards. Yeah. It wasn't even the couch. It was the floor. And um, so I moved out to California and pursued a career in comedy for a few years. And I wound up getting uh, close. So I wound up getting into the writer's rooms of shows like The Office, Parks and Recreation, um, America's Funniest Home Videos, trying to, to sell scripts. And unfortunately, Brian, uh, the timing when I went out there was right when Big Brother and all these other reality shows were coming online. So you can mm -hmm. now produce uh, television at a third of the cost for the same result. And that did not bode well for comedy writers at the time. So I gave up and went to Shanghai, China, because if you're going to give up on your dreams, you've got to do something extraordinary or you'll live with regret. And so I went out for a commission only job in Shanghai, China, where we built up a 44 person. Um, we were the largest out of 36 companies that were licensed to do what we did. And I was the key employee in that organization. And, you know, we tried things like equity profit sharing and, and we're looking at an exit uh, that started out somewhere in the eight figures and everybody was so excited. But our comp plan really with the key players just drove us all apart. And what took six years to build fell apart real quick. Hence, um, I was a little bit bitter about that one, Brian, and uh, told a little bit of woe is me for a while, but realized that a lot of people had this problem with how do we win together with our key players. And so I started Intuitive Compensation Group. And then um, ultimately what led me to, to write this book, Rise of the Super Producers, was kind of like you and in, in, in your pursuit for greatness in, in what you do, is I wanted to be the best version of myself I could. And so... What wound up happening for me was I started studying the professionals in my industry and realizing 
that the greatness that they were having was more to do with their proximity to big markets like Southern California, New York, Florida. They weren't doing anything different. They just happened to be in better places. So if I was going to perform, I had to start thinking out of the box and saying, how do I get the phone to ring from these markets? Because if I'm going to compete in those markets, I need people from there to call me because I can't fly around the country every day and, and prospect in those in those areas. And so I started studying what uh, and finding what I called super producers, but I found them in the weirdest place. I was going to like MLM uh, conferences and I was going to entrepreneurial conferences. And I started watching how people were speaking from stage, what they were pushing people into afterwards, if you will. In other words, there was always some sort of follow-up. And what was really interesting was I started to realize that I was subconsciously being positioned to buy a whole lot of professional services products. And so I started getting into the courses. I started joining the, their programs. And the more I got in there, I went, this is brilliant. And I'm watching how much business they're doing in these areas that I'm going, oh my goodness, you know what? If I'm a CPA, other CPAs aren't my competition anymore. If I'm in the financial advisory business, other advisors aren't my, in, aren't my competition anymore. I said, these people are. They're doing billions and, with, and very efficiently. And so I asked the question, I went, why isn't anybody training me to think like this? And so Super Producers was the culmination of the study of these people and what they were doing, how they were doing. So people can kind of break the frame of, you know, where a consultative approach would fit in today's society versus, you know, what I call a, a severe competitor that's that's really gaining steam in the market. So to start, can you give us kind of um, maybe the, the, what the two different, like, what's the profile look like? So the what path will a normal producer go, the career agent, I believe you call them in the book, versus the super producer? Like, what are some of the, the high level, like, key differences in, in how they think and how they approach the business? So the, the biggest difference is from the start, which is that a super producer, as I call them, thinks of this very entrepreneurially. They do not want to get into a self-employed situation or a linear business model. And so when you're starting out, if you're not famous, your best bet is to specialize in something that's very high ticket. So you need the capital to be able to compete in the marketplace. Uh, so what a super producer does is they will go out and niche down to who, where is this high ticket item that I want to specialize in most prevalent? And what everybody else was doing in the industry or how people were trained in the industry was, you know, come in, prospect, find somebody who you can help, and then try to take them through a process where we can position and then present things. And so by specializing, what you effectively did was you moved the positioning to, instead of when they meet you, you moved it to almost your prospecting where people were, were aware of what you did and were seeking you out versus needing to meet you, needing to get into a one-on-one -on -one meeting with you to find out if you're a good fit, to then gather information, et cetera. And, you know, I argue, Brian, we were talking about these principles while I highlighted the financial services industry. And I did that because most of the super producers were coming out of the life insurance and the, and the financial advisory space. And I think that the disruption in their market or the potential is ripe. And that's why it was. 
But even, even as we've been to a lot of conferences, and, and Brian, I don't know if your listeners know this, but I think you're my number one roadie as far as seeing me speak. <laughs> but the, uh, right. I, think you, I think you hold the trophy at four times. Other people yep. have been at three, but I think you've got gotcha uh, four. Special, bo- yeah, special bond on that fourth time when I could look mm-hmm. over during all the jokes and me and you share a laugh because you, you're not going to laugh at the joke anymore. Right. But um, uh, and now, now I'm thinking of, of you at the conferences. Yeah. So I think it comes back to, you know, how do you, how do you, like you said there, I think a career producer is you're trading your time for money. Like it's a one-to-one, like you said, it's this linear approach versus somebody who's thinking more at scale, which is how can I, you know, how can 10 people at once, a hundred people at once, a thousand people at once get the same message from me. Uh, and that's, that's where I think you get into this broadcast concept, right? Yeah. So there's a, a lot of a lot of business owners use the deliverable as their value and what broadcast selling allows you to do is it allows you to relate the value of your service not to the deliverable but to the future value and in order to be able to charge more in order to be able to create a more profitable, increase your profit margins, increase your revenue at that scale, you've got to talk to a lot more people. The, the argument that everybody's going to be ready for, let me use this as a car example. So if I ran 31 Midas shops, how many, how many do you have, Brian? 30, 29. If I ran, so, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so if I ran 31 Midas shops, you know, uh, marketing can be inefficient because not everybody might be ready for brake pads. Not everybody... You know, if I put out an oil change coupon, that might not apply to people. And so, but you've got to keep in front of people, if you will. And what broadcast selling does is it is it allows you to scalably incubate the people who are not quite ready for your service. And that might be that they're too immature, that they can't afford you yet, that they don't trust you yet. But you've got to be able to very scalably not keep reaching out to them in, a, in an effortless way of you know, spending money, yeah. but you've got to reach out to them in a way that serves a purpose for the business that moves people along who are not only incubating, but at the same token can act as a closing mechanism and as a service mechanism. And it's much more efficient when you're able to, to be able to do that. Yeah. So a lot, a lot there. It's good, good stuff. So yeah, you're, you're saying it's, it's, you're staying in the ear, you're providing value. So in my example, it could be, you know, there's just constant message on car repair or how you, whatever, improve your gas mileage or just everyday things, right? That's that's providing value in education, not just trying to price point sell tires or whatever it is, right? And then yep. when they need something, now they're going to think of me because, you know, I've been in their ear, been educating, I've been creating trust, you know, all along the way um, with these different tips and, and tricks and whatever, right? So it goes saying? further than that. Okay. Yeah, so it goes a little further than that, Brian, which is... That's that's good on a branding front. Okay. But what super what super producers were doing was they're saying, how do I monetize these touches? And how do I monetize them in a way that's increasing value to not only my business, but also to the employees and to the customers? So let me give you an example on my 31 Midas stores. If I was to, to say, okay. Uh, in the book, I talk about Midas would, would fall under the category of a generalist. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, because we, we service a lot of, yeah, we service, you know, a lot of different parts of, of a vehicle. It's not like we just do oil changes or just do brakes or just do tires. So, yeah. So, 
In a generalist business, the best way to grow your company is typically operations or procedures, which you are very, very good at. And so the name of the game becomes, you know, how do we market to get customers in the door? And then when we get them in the door, how can we analyze and, you know, how best service their vehicle over the long term and, and do so in a way that's affordable, comfortable, uh, keeps them coming back, keeps them as loyal customers so that they can come in one place. So what to give you examples of how super producer principles may apply here, Brian, would be to say, what is the highest margin ticket we do? I'm going to guess tires or brakes or that there's... Uh, yeah, like labor-driven things like alignments or, or you know, have no, have no cost of goods to them um, to, to make sure the wheels are aligned right. So, you know, what, I, what a super producer would take a look at saying is, okay, if we take a look at how a generalist generally competes in the marketplace, it usually competes on price, which means that, you know, it's a it becomes a commodity of you can go here versus there. Um, ease of doing business as well. I know when I went to get tires, uh, I went to discount tire. I didn't yep. think of going to my dealership. I didn't think of going to Lexus dealership. I didn't go to Midas. I just went to the tire place because they made it easy in, in my mind. And for some reason, I think I had shopped around three other places and it became about where I could get this done as quick as possible for the lowest price. I just wanted a deliverable, if you will. So what a super producer would say is, okay, how do we create an experience with our, in, within our customer base? How can we use broadcasting, if you will? How can we stay in front of people, but put together an event that might make it fun for the employees, profitable for everybody, including the employees, the, the, uh, every, the business, uh, the managers, et cetera? And how could we target the people who may be in a position where they're not going to be competing on price? The super producer knows that the sale's not done when they come into the store or because they got a coupon. In order to get maximum value out of a transaction, what they would do is they would then they would tie the value before you they ever came into the shop or before they were even looking for the tire. So if you could go through your database, Brian, and pull out all the people that have tire changes coming up or are at a, a, line, a typical alignment mile, then marketing to them or sending them something ahead of time with a with a letter or an advertisement that doesn't talk about the discounting or price, but talks about how insurance rates have gone up 20% because of an increase in poor driving, how tires or alignments can be one of the, the, the greatest things that saves value over your, the lifetime of your vehicle. And if you do that in coordination with like a tire company, let's say a Michelin, and you can get a Michelin wholesale in there to put a, a kid's bouncy castle or a <laughs> t-shirt, free t-shirt offer in there, then now you've got people coming in where price isn't an option. They're, they're volunteering to get on your schedule. Um, and they're not thinking of anybody else. Sure, you may trigger some sales at some other auto events, or you'll have some people, but those aren't the customers you typically want anyway. So, you know, the downside to broadcast selling, I always say, is you probably increase your industry sales overall, but you, your goal is to capture the best customers. So if you put that out there and you promote the big tire sale and everything else, some people may shop on the price and et cetera. But, but the message would be completely different than the normal, if you would. Okay. And you're seeing a lot of these are uh, event-driven. Like you like you said, you're holding an event with balloons and the bouncy house and you're, you're on stage. <laughs> that was an off-the-cup. Right. But, but you're, you're was... on stage, right? Is, is part of that, there's the broadcast is there's like, there is some sort of event, a time-based thing and you're, you're presenting in some sort of format, whether it's digital or in person or at a park, whatever, right? Is that... Is that part of this formula? 
So I, I always argue that uh, events are good for rounding up and tracking data. So if I wanted to run a tire event, Brian, I could know my exact cost and I know the exact return for every event that I ran. That's much better than branding or marketing over a year or two where you don't know who you're attributing to what. So there's positives to events. There's positives to speaking. The positives to speaking is that you get to test story, which is the number one way that you can increase the value of what you can charge and, and increase margins. Okay. Uh, but you don't have to. There's a lot of introverts out there that that just write and do nothing else. Okay. So so back to so in your business or in the professional services, which we're talking about, I, I guess like accountants, lawyers, life insurance, financial advising, is that kind of the ballpark yep. there? Okay. Are, th- are there laws around them in terms of business what they... Business coaches. Okay. Yeah, business coach. Are, are there laws around that, which what they can and can't say on stage and, and are there restrictions on how they can market themselves? So this was this was the most interesting component that I found was that the super producers that were co- and and the reason I think they're coming out of the financial and the insurance industries was because of the regulations in those industries. And so what people were doing Brian was they were creating what I call an avatar business. And an avatar business is something like you'd have a financial advisor who would become a business coach. That business coach would then promote that business coaching business. And what he would do is he would promote it to his target market. So in other words, uh, let's say I was in a state, I was in a state planning financial advisor. Uh, I may set up a coaching business on, you know, th- an educational business around getting why you would want to get a will done. And if I did that, I would drive people there. And then what I would do is once they came into that avatar business is I would then specifically market them because now I've got their information. Now I know who they are. Now I know at what stage they're in. Now I can send very specific messages to people with very specific offers. And so it was a way for people to build an outside business that could then market without the restrictions to pull clients into an area that they could then target market. Now, what was happening here, Brian, was that as soon as these super producers were realizing the power of that, is they started putting editorial calendars together and and saying, hey, you know, we can sell these people need more than just wills and just, you know, estate planning in their investments in their insurances. These people also need, you know, nursing homes. They also need, you know, to line up prepaid funeral, Medicare options, et cetera. And so what they were doing was they were building a whole organization that was constantly monetizing the people that were coming into their systems. And as soon as they realized the value of this monetization, they were then moving all in on being that person uh, that just kept driving in the the leads and and put teams and systems in place around them to hmm. monetize them on an ongoing basis. All right, and it was is some of that I guess through through their own employees or or kind of partnerships. You find pe- experts in these fields, and it's referral based type of type of deals. So you see, I see both, Brian. There are people who do this on an internal basis. But typically speaking, once you get comfortable with it, you don't want the headache of internally running it. What you want to do is collaborate with other super producers. And, you know, you're seen as an expert and what you're doing is you're now merging your client base with their client base. So you each get that exposure and content. And so it's more of a collaboration that allowed people to do more business together than it, than they could have if they were trying to run a company that did everything for everyone. The moment they started leaving that that specialty, the less effective they were. 
Okay. And so the, the framework looks like you're you're an expert in something and instead of maybe being a generalist, you you know, it's it's all about whatever estate planning, whatever it is. You then create a brand around driving people to you as the ex, you know, estate planning expert, which then you monetize through kind of multiple multiple ways. The services you can do and then the services that you refer out that they're gonna need somewhere. So they might as well, you know, kind of get it all done in one place because now there's this this trust established. That a, and that, that's yeah, summary. that's one of the biggest that is and Brian, that's one of the biggest shifts, if you will, inside of the information age as we deepen into it, which is people no longer wish for one-off, uncoordinated experiences. They want to go to one place that's helping them move forward on the next step in their journey without having to relearn. There's so much information these days that that person almost cuts their time, effort, and energy in in analyzing the data and the information that they're going to need on their journey. And it's in the professional services business, you know, I'd argue it's becoming more and more important for people to serve that and more attractive to the customers. As I said before, some of these super producers are doing numbers that are outproducing a hundred other advisors because of this system and this type of um, mm. selling. So how, how does one get started on this? Or how do they pick if they're generalists now, you're saying you got to pick pick one thing to talk about or one thing to be the expert on. So how, how do you go from the generalist to then deciding, hey, I'm going all in on this one thing? Brian, you ask good questions. That's why I like you. My brain doesn't, <laughs> my brain wouldn't be able to come up with that. Um, very simply, uh, I use myself as an example. So when I decided that I wanted to my path for how I was going to pursue greatness within my firm or my industry was when I anal- when I started analyzing everybody else, I needed I realized I needed to become a specialist. And that was very difficult because I was a, a, a successful generalist, and it's very painful to make that transition. So the way that I did it at the time was to say, I started communicating. I said, here's a specialist. And in my current client base, these people qualify. So let's say 20% of them might be prospects for this specialization. So what I did was I called up that 20% and I told them, I said, I've started getting known for uh, this specific key employee retention problem. Would you mind if I got together with you, showed you what I'm doing, and then ask you if it would be applicable to your business and or if you were me, how would you get this message out? Who would you want to talk to? And that allowed me to build up a base of centers of influence. It allowed me to test product messaging. It allowed me to put together to, to see what their questions were so I could put together mm-hmm. content that really spoke to the heart of, of what was doing. And that's how we met was I was doing, I was able to take that information from interviewing those clients, put together a speech. That speech got me in, to in front of Midas. And then that's how we met. Yep. Yeah, I think that's that's a great example. And I think, uh, you know, even even for for me, you know, working on, hey, how do I, you know, even a podcast, right? What could I talk about? I could talk about a million different things that I enjoy and trying to niche down to 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 a specific conversation that, uh, you know, appeals to a certain type of people, right? Um, versus if you try to be everything to everyone, you're all over the place and like nobody knows what they're going to get. And so, um, you know, that, that might seem easier, but it's actually... You know, it's a lot more impactful to talk more deeply about a specific topic. And in our case, it's you know, kind of growing business and and um, you know, growing profitability and, and building income streams. So, 
That's 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 great. So what's um so someone picks something, they target their customers to say, hey, this 20%, now I find this thing. What's what's kind of the next step to go, you know, because really it's personal brand, right? You're what you're we're talking about is building the personal brand, becoming known for you as a person, whether it's a coach in this specific field, as a speaker. Uh what's your guidance for the next step? Is it is it podcast? Is it books? Is it how to, how do they get become a public speaker? Like there's totally different ways people could go about. Uh, I guess what's your kind of plan or, or if you're gonna start with your yourself then? So uh, my plan being an extrovert that hates operations, we'd be the perfect business partners one day, Brian. But we'd have, uh, you know, for me, it was speaking uh, and creating. Once you get to the point where you've got validity in your niche, if you will, or in your specialization, then comes choice. And it's a very difficult choice, Brian, for a lot of people to make. And a lot of people can't give up the other 80% to just focus on not only the 20%, but now you're doing a different thing for those 20%. So you're actually only keeping about 2% of your, your client base, if you will. Not many people then can take that leap to push forth. But the next step would be you then need to find out based on your personality, what your strengths are, where it is, what your super producer assets would be. So mine are speaking and books because that's I like to think, I like to create, uh, I like to present. So those ones are the ones that I went all in on. But you need some type of asset that allows customers to find out about what you do before they meet you. You need to put together a value ladder to find out how these people are going to meet you, what process you take them through, how you're that journey specialist, if you will. And you need different levels of working with you because the key for a super producer is is incubating all the people who are maybes and not quite yet that can still monetize them so that you can find more and keep them in that incubation circle until they're ready to become the ideal client that fits your specialization. So to answer the question, the next step is what type of super producer are you going to be and what are your assets? And those assets could be writing books. They could be speaking. It could be a podcast. It could be anything that's scalable. It could be just writing an email every day. Are you going to build an avatar business because of compliance or regulation, or or because it's easier to market, or or do you just build what you have? And so there's decisions that have to be made to keep pursuing the path of a super producer, and they aren't easy choices. What I found is that the biggest thing that holds people back from doing this, despite them saying that they want to, is the ability to give up what they've been doing because it's safe and it's comfortable to pursue their their potential. And I I was surprised at how many people can't or won't, or don't want to make that those sacrifices to pursue that. So with your crystal ball, what do you see? Do you see these, these career guys learning and adapting to this new way? Or do you see new, you know, younger people or different people from the outside just coming in and eating their cake? Because they're going to do it from day one versus somebody yeah. who's got to try to relearn the system. So, Brian, that's why I wrote this book and ultimately why I switched it to the financial services industry was I felt our industry was losing to people who were not even in our industry, who are coming in and executing these principles and taking market share at just an incredible pace. And so what I hope this book does for our industry is it gives people the ability to see what's happening, because we all know that we sense that this is out there. If you're in the financial services or 
or life insurance business, you, you're marketed all day long on, hey, how can you get marketing leads from, from and they'll, they'll promise these types of principles, but nobody explains the what needs to happen beforehand so that those marketing campaigns can work. They just apply the same thing to everybody. And so what I'm hoping that this book does is it's an awareness of what's actually happening, how they're doing it, and that it helps people unleash the super producer in them so that our industry is doing more of this where you have these, these people who want to be a super producer and then they're, they're collaborating with people who are already in the industry to then make it happen on the back end um, on that editorial or broadcast selling concept that I talk about. So I hope to bring it more internally than these external players that are coming in and, and crushing it. Yep. Okay. That's awesome. So, I mean, p- pivot here question for you. So how do you, um, you know, what do you, what do you, what are some of your key, I guess, philosophies around managing your own wealth and building your wealth? Is it life insurance, equities, real estate, kind of where do you, once you're making your money, how are you protecting it and increasing it? Um, personally, uh, it's been the last three years, it's been investing all in on myself. So uh, I have seven life insurance policies. <laughs> so there's my safety net, if you will. And then I've got, um, uh, other than that, I've been going on, I've been pursuing a path of uh, online marketing, digital assets, et cetera. So most of the assets that we've been turning in have been to fuel more marketing campaigns and, and push these principles. Uh, pensions, 401ks, I'm a, I'm a very passive. I don't, I have not dabbled into real estate. I enjoy watching your dabbling into real estate. To me, it's it hasn't been, I feel I can get better return on myself than I can in, in the passive place at this point in time. And I also am from the camp of uh, everything's been too high for the last two years. So I'm one of those people that uh, fear left me out of uh, acting on any opportunities anyway. Yep. Well, you know, I will all- say the most the most interesting things that I've studied have been what people are doing with very niche equipment leasing, uh, mobile mobile home trailers, low end housing type mm-hmm. uh, programs, opportunity zones. These have been the things that have been on my radar. I just didn't want to tie up money because I felt inflation was going to be hitting us hard. And I didn't want to be tied up for X number of years uh, in something during an inflationary environment. Great. So any other books that you've uh, you've enjoyed reading besides yours over the last, you know, six yeah, months or so? Only mine. Yeah. No. I just keep <laughs> reading mine over and over. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, there was a really cool one. I'm mostly a business book person. And I kept seeing people read this book called The Art of Seduction. And so The Art of Seduction was about the world's greatest lovers, but it was about their power and influence over other people. And if you read this book from a persuasion and influence on the masses, not just on dating uh, by Robert Greene, I've never highlighted more in a book than I did with this book. And the ability to seduce, uh, part of it, Brian, why I liked it is because it goes hand in hand with the super producer principles, which is how do you influence and persuade somebody to to get on your calendar to buy, not to have to be sold. And so this, that book is a really, for me, just kind of put the, the psychology behind the scenes into play from all sorts of different personality aspects. And that was really cool. Okay. What did your wife think when she found the, the book? Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> the number one comment I get on that. I tell her it's so that I can, uh, I can be more of a Romeo with her. There you go. <laughs> 
Yeah. Good. Uh, awesome. So where, where can listeners connect? Where can they, they buy the book? Um, where can they connect with you? Yep, so the book is just out on amazon.com and um, uh, you can go there. You can also go to uh, superproducercoach.com, which we have, which allows people to see a little bit more into uh, what we're doing on the back end to help other people uh, study these principles further. Awesome. Cool. I appreciate you coming on and, and chatting about the book. And I got a ton of notes too on, on how it, I think it can apply to all, a, a lot of different businesses if you kind of look, uh, take these principles through your own lens. I think that's great. Thank yep. you. And um, cool. Have a good one. Yep. Rock on, Brian. That's all we got for this episode with the Business with Beers podcast. One thing that would really help both us and other new potential listeners is to rate the show and leave a comment in iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you listen. Also, make sure to link up with me on your preferred social media platforms, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. You can find all my links at brianbeers.com. Please just share the podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy it. And until next time, remember to take the actions others won't to live the life that others don't. 